0: Welcome to the first Mendocino College Symposium Community Lecture Series. I'm Nika Aguirre and I teach history for Mendocino College. I'm proud to present the first lecture in this series. Our speaker today is Professor Phil Worf. Professor Worf has a BA in Political Science from the University of Memphis and a Master's in International Relations from the University of South Carolina. Before teaching, we worked for the Democratic National Committee, worked in opinion polling, and had his own research firm. Professor Worf has taught for Mendocino College since 2007 and his talk today is titled Thumb on the Scale, Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections.
1: So I just want to talk about some uh, important dynamics related to elections, mainly about voter suppression, about gerrymandering, drawing up congressional districts to benefit one party, talk about voter identification, and uh, closing of polling stations, and maybe a little bit about mail balloting and, um, and all, that, uh, all that stuff. So might as well start um, talking about why, why this is important. And it's important because the Republican Party is in crisis, uh, and the Republicans are in trouble a little bit. It doesn't look like it right now. They have the presidency, they have the Senate, um, they had the House till a couple of years ago, so they're pretty dominant, but the party's base voter is, uh, tends to be older, tends to be whiter, uh, tends to be uh, male, uh, dominantly male, and uh, you know, men are a minority of voters now, older and wider Republican base is shrinking. And um, so after Obama's re-election in 2012, they put together this uh, Growth and Opportunity Project. We're just looking at, you know, what do, what do we do as a Republican Party to reach out to these uh, more minority voters, uh, and more uh, voters that we're uh, unable to connect with, more women? And so they, they talked about the opportunities that were available, the things that they could do, looking at uh, possible uh, changes to their program. And uh, ultimately, they decided that wasn't what they were going to do. Um, so they decided that, you know, they couldn't, they didn't want to do this other thing. And so they had to figure out how to improve their chances in coming elections. And one of the things that they've decided to do, primarily Republicans, uh, is to uh, do things like redistricting and, uh, and, and require voter ID laws and things like this that effectively uh, try to uh, suppress the vote. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit uh, tonight. I mean, it doesn't look like um, Republicans are in trouble, but uh, they ultimately chose the latter strategy of trying to engage in some uh, suppression to maintain their uh, as, you know, as much as uh, much control as they could. Okay so um, you know one of the, the problems is with uh, the, uh, the. US uh, political system and a problem for Democrats in particular is that uh, there's a good part of it that's pretty undemocratic And so California is particularly, um, A concern for California here. And you can see that, you know, um, Congress has or California has 68 times the population, right, 68 times the population of Wyoming, but each of them has uh, two senators. It's kind of a fundamentally anti-democratic structure. And something that, um, you know, Californians and others in large states uh, have, have, um, have trouble, um, you know, reflecting their, the influence that they should um, in the Senate and the Electoral College and so forth. Um, the Republicans have controlled the Senate for half of the last four decades, uh, but they've only represented a majority of the public. Uh, for about two years during that uh, during that period, right? And so you know, right now, the Republicans have about 53 votes out of 100, and this have 53 votes out of 100 in the Senate. But its members represent 15 million fewer Americans than uh, Democratic senators. So Republicans are really a minority party. Um, they've lost the U.S. House, of course, in the last election. The Senate and the Electoral College are tilted in their favor because of the sort of anti-democratic nature of the Senate, which also determines some of the Electoral College vote. And so they're really benefiting from that. Um, you know, the Senators, another example is that um, last year when uh, the Senate voted to approve uh, um, uh, to ratify Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, he got, uh, you know, enough uh, enough votes to win, but those votes only represented 44 percent of the public. So really, we have minority rules. I mean, we've had a, a, a situation where we've had um, justices put on the Supreme Court that actually by by people who represent a minority of the country. Uh, how long this this can be sustained is unclear. So. This gives uh, Republicans a a leg up in the Senate, also gives them a leg up uh, in the Electoral College. So I don't want to talk about the Electoral College right now, Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it later, but I want to focus on voter suppression uh, issues like uh, gerrymandering, uh, voter ID laws, registration purges, um, closing polling stations, and uh, now uh, with these new attacks um, on voting by, by mail. So, I want to look first. Uh, I mean, I'll look at the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives is important because they're um, allocated, seats in the House are based uh, and allocated entirely on population. So, it's a more representative institution. Um, and although the Democrats managed to win in 2018, um, most of the, this decade, the Republicans held the House, and they did so not by getting more votes, generally speaking, and, or in many states, let's say, but by taking advantage of this wrinkle in the U.S. political system called redistricting. And it's very unusual because in the United States, state legislatures are in charge of redistricting, and this is not the way, um, you know, the Democratic Countries draw districts, and really any other place, and so this gives a party who's in charge of the state legislature a great deal of power over what happens. So, if we look at how this um, po- process works for redistricting, well, um, basically every ten years you have a census. We're in the middle of it right now, and what happens after you get the census? Is it will determine. Um, you know, what the population is, and in, in all the states, and based on that, there's something called reapportionment, and it's reapportionment because there's only 435 members of Congress, that's not going to change, it should, we should have a lot more. Um, because the, the districts are huge in terms of the number of people, have the same problem in California. But reapportionment will take those 435 and redistribute them according to where the population has shifted over the past decade. So the state legislatures um, are in charge of this, but th- this hap- they redraw their own districts, which is nice to do, and they also draw districts for um, Congress as well. So the three basic things that you have to do in redistricting: you got to make equal uh, population. Right, and then you got to have contiguity Contiguity, so that um, you can't have any islands. So all the districts have to be um, connected, meaning there's, you can't have part of a district over here and then part of a district over here, they have to be con- uh, connected, uh, no islands as they say. And then compactness, they have to be as compact as possible. You can't have like a, a strip 10 miles wide all the way across the state, even though that, that pretty much has happened. Uh, and so those are the three sort of basic requirements, equal population, contiguity and compactness um, as well. So um, right now, politicians are doing this in most states, 42 of the 50 states. So whichever uh, party controls that state state legislature is going to be able to draw districts that benefit uh, that party. Okay, so so gerrymandering. Well, um, one of the uh, this this comes out of um, Massachusetts, and this is in 1812. Uh, Elbridge Gerry was the governor of Massachusetts. Uh, his party was responsible for drawing uh, state, senate uh, districts and uh, congressional districts. And you can see here that. Uh, People said this district here looks like some, you know, wicked salamander, and uh, Elbridge Gerry is the governor, so you got gerrymandering. This is from 1812. There's two kinds of gerrymandering. There's a bipartisan, there's a partisan gerrymander, in which case you're you're trying to get as many seats for your party as possible, and there's a bipartisan gerrymander, where mainly you're trying to, uh, if you have a mixed control or divided control, the goal really is to make sure each uh, each party's incumbents are able to win reelection. So that's a that's a bipartisan gerrymander. I'm going to be mostly talking about um, partisan gerrymanders here. All right. Um, so we got to start back at the beginning. So African American voting rights in the South. So right after the Civil War. Um, There were uh, some important amendments that were passed uh, to protect the the rights and liberties of uh, former slaves. So the the 13th Amendment actually freed the slaves. The 14th Amendment talks about equal protection, meaning that uh, all groups and all individuals in society should have equal protection. But it's mostly about um, protecting uh, former slaves and African-Americans, right? So equal protection under the law. The law can't treat people differently based on some innate characteristic like race. Uh, And then the 15th Amendment talks about voting rights. And that's what the focus is here. Um, You know, but, um, you know, uh, African Americans in the South had full voting rights, um, you know, right after the Civil War, after the 15th Amendment for men, of course, for men, and um, they were able to um, you know, they're able to enjoy those rights and liberties up until about eight, for the most part, up until 1877 uh, at the end of reconstruction and the withdrawal of um, northern troops in the South. And uh, the, the Southerners were able to come up with some fairly um, clever and diabolical ways to uh, to take away voting rights from African Americans. Um, they did things called white primaries, where only if you have a one party, region like the South was, a Democratic Party region after the the war, if you have primaries where African-Americans can't vote in them and only whites, uh, the Democratic candidate's always going to win the general election. So if you can keep blacks from voting in the primary, then you can disenfranchise them. Uh, Poll taxes uh, also were something that were were done. Of course, that makes it harder for people who uh, have less income, and that was typically the case, obviously, for African-Americans. Literacy tests and uh, I, uh, I could show you a little bit of a literacy test and take a little, um, a little extra time. But if you look at this example, this is one from Louisiana. And this was actually from the 1940s, so it wasn't that long ago. Um, and here's a so there are 30 questions on it. You have to answer all 30 of them correct. And you have to answer them, I think, 10 minutes. So here's one. Divide a vertical line into two equal parts by bisecting it with a curved horizontal line that is only straight at its spot bisection of the vertical. Now, everybody can do that very easily, of course. And so the idea behind these literacy tests was not to determine whether you had the capability of understanding things to vote. It was simply by keeping um, African-Americans and others that they didn't want to vote. And then, of course, racial gerrymandering. And this racial gerrymandering took a lot of forms, but one of the main ones was no redistricting. So what would happen is, or you would have rural dominant redistricting where you would have big, big big districts um, that were mainly rural voters. In Tennessee, for example, uh, they hadn't redistricted since 1901. Uh, This was in 1962 in the case of Baker versus Carr. They haven't redistricted since 1901. uh, And the courts said that's that's a violation of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Guarantee. Um, so that was the first case. It was this court case out of Tennessee. Reynolds v. Sims was the next one out of Alabama. And, and that was the key one that established one person, one vote as a standard. And, um, you know, made it clear that these are cases that the courts, these are issues the courts can get involved in because they involve equal protection. And then the most important one here was Westbury versus Sanders, at least for our conversation 1964, um, which was the, you know, these are all malapportionment cases, meaning the districts were drawn improperly. And uh, it says that the U.S. House now has to be reflected in the one one person, one vote standard. So that was really key. And this emerges in the civil rights era in 1964.
0: You're listening to the Mendocino College Symposium. This is Professor Phil Worf. His talk is titled, Thumb on the Scale, Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections.
1: So the Voting Rights Act 1965 was passed, um, and this had a a number of key provisions in it. But um, there's three of them here that I think are important for this discussion. And one of them is called, uh, one of them is section two, and it basically says you can't uh, engage in vote denial or dilution, meaning you can't keep someone from voting or some group from voting, and you can't create a situation where those votes are completely diluted and meaningless. Um, So section two does that. Section five talks about preclearance, okay? So preclearance basically means that um, with redistricting is the state has to present to the U.S. Justice Department their proposal for preclearance, the idea what the map that they want to implement. And the Department of Justice would have the ability to m- make a determination as to whether that has um, upheld, the, whether the, it's met the 14th Amendment obligation of equal protection and the one person, one vote standard. And the preclearance is based on uh, the, the states that have to do the preclearance are uh, laid out based on Section 4 and that defines who's covered and why. And this is important because this is what the court goes after later. What's really interesting about the Voting Rights Act is that it was renewed four times and latest in 2006 and it was renewed for 25 years. Uh, that didn't last uh, quite 25 years. Okay, And so the Supreme Court had a couple of key decisions in uh, the this last decade that basically Obliterated the Voting Rights Act and uh, Congress's ability to, and the court's ability to go after malapportionment and wrong. Uh, ra- uh, improper redistricting. So the 2013 case is quite uh, famous, Shelby County versus Holder, is a case out of Alabama, and uh, John Roberts uh, is the was is the current Chief Justice, and his uh, he wrote the decision. He says that pre-clearance review is based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relation to the present day, and so what that basically means is that um, uh, you know that was in the 1960s or 1970s, and you know, things have changed this then, and we don't we don't need to, to look at that um, that calculation or the way that's determined today. I think that's a very optimistic view and perhaps an uh, an inaccurate view. Uh, but they didn't say that um, pre-clearance and all that is is forever gone. What they said was Section four, which defines the states that have to be that have to honor. Uh, or that have to meet those requirements of uh, certain requirements, those are out of date. So Congress could come back and uh, rewrite Section 4 in a way that now is, I guess, would satisfy the court's need for something to be uh, logically related to the present day. All right, uh, and then uh, six years later, and this is just last year in uh, Rucho versus Common Cause, and this is a case out of North Carolina and also um, out of um, they combined it with a case from Maryland about uh, redistricting and gerrymandering. All right, and so um, the uh, the Russo versus common cause case, uh, Leo uh, Samuel Leo wrote the decision there, and basically the determination was this is a non-justiciable question, meaning that the courts aren't going to get involved. This is something for politicians to uh, determine. And so this was these are two key decisions, and basically sort of eviscerated the Voting Rights Act effectively. All right, um, so. We'll look at how this works. All right, so we have a we have an election, uh, and the election determines who's in charge of state legislatures. And also, and bef- but before that happens, you have reapportionment, where based on the distribution of those um, electoral or the the uh, 435 members of Congress, uh, some states are going to get more, and some states are going to lose some. And you can see in 2010, it mainly benefited the Republicans. Right, you lose a couple of uh, New York lost two electoral college votes. Um, Uh, Texas gained four, Florida gained two, and, uh, you know, Georgia, South Carolina, and others gained, and mostly Republican states um, came out uh, ahead there. And we'll see the same thing in 2020. Uh, Most of the population is moving south. Look at all these states here in the upper Midwest that are going to lose people. California is going to lose an electoral college vote, it looks like, right? So again, this is going to benefit Republicans quite significantly. Right? Assuming that voting patterns stay the way they are today, so reapportionment, redistributing those votes. Now, so once you get your uh, your your a number of representatives, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to create your congressional district? So the state legislature will engage in uh, this, and if the if one party controls, there'll be partisan gerrymandering. Uh, I guarantee you. And so what this means is uh, what we refer to as something called packing and cracking. So if you have, let's say you have a state, it's got 60% blue, um, you know, segments, uh, groups of people, and it's got uh, 40%, uh, let's say districts, and 40%, uh, well, let's say counties. So um, 60% of the counties are blue and 40% of the counties are red. Great. So if you have the blue guys in charge, um, soon would be Democrats, the blue guys in charge, they can draw districts where they, ha- they win all five of them. Right. So they can just draw them. So there's four um, red blocks and six blue blocks in each one of them. And that gives them a five to zero advantage. Well, now, what if the what if the red team is in charge? And even though they have uh, fewer uh, areas of the state that are, um, let's say, if the Republicans conservative, they can actually take the same distribution of voters and redraw the districts so that now they could have an advantage, so the, uh, like a three to two advantage. And what they can do is uh, something called packing and cracking. So with packing, they draw a district that has almost all blue um, segments in it, or blue counties, and then one red county. So they're packing all the, say, Democrats into this county. They're doing the same thing up here or into this district. They're doing the same thing up here. And then what are they doing? They're um, taking the rest of those and they're cracking them up and putting them in with some uh, red areas. And they do this for each of those uh, particular uh, districts. And so now, if the red team is in charge, they can draw uh, districts that give them three members of Congress versus two members of Congress or likely members of Congress from the other side. Now, if you want to do a bipartisan gerrymander... Then you could just have two red districts and then three blue districts, and usually that happens when you have a split control of the state legislature or the the or the legislature and the and the executive. And uh, the idea then is let's just protect what we've got, okay. And so that's how you steal an election, you might say, but basically packing and cracking, right? Going after um, going after as many seats as possible based on what you have, even if it's a minority of the vote or minority of the areas of the state. Um, By being able to draw the lines, you're able to have a big influence on the outcome of the election and get much more power than you would get if everything was based proportionally on the vote. This tells you how powerful redistricting can be. I have another uh, really good example here And this is from Texas. So uh, if you guys remember Tom DeLay, who used to be the Speaker of the House, he was from Texas, and uh, he was a pretty, pretty tough politician. And uh, he, uh, the um, Republicans in Texas took control of the Republican state legislature in 2002. In 2001, the Democrats had drawn the boundaries. Republicans took control of the state legislature in 2002. And so they said, hey, we're going to, Tom DeLay said, hey, you're going to redraw districts. And there's nothing, there's no law against this. You can redraw districts whenever you want to. Typically, it's done right after the census and they stay in effect. But here, there was a big opportunity to pick up seats. And so what they did was something clever. They used the packing and cracking, but they also used, um, they also understood the, the power of incumbency. Incumbents, people are currently in office, they went about 90% of the time. So, if you leave those incumbents sticking around, well, they're going to might be able to keep those seats. And so, what they did was they created some districts that had uh, Democratic incumbents. They had some districts with the Republican incumbents. And then, what they did was they created some districts here where they had a Republican and a Democratic incumbent congressperson. They stuck them in the same district. And, a, and they drew the district so there would be more Republican than Democratic, so this enables them to not only win the district, but to knock out a Democratic incumbent politician, making uh, it be easier for them to pick up other seats, right? And then they drew these districts in green that had no incumbent at all, and because they drew the districts, they were able to draw districts that, that where Republicans were very likely to win. And so by doing these two things, by cracking and packing, and then by um, going after incumbents, they were able to, in 2004, win 21 seats for the Republicans to just 11 for the Democrats. So you can see that Republicans went from 15 to 21 seats Democrats went from 17 seats down to 11 seats simply by redrawing district boundaries. And this is pretty phenomenal. The the Democrats or the Republicans won seats in the House in 2004 equal to the number of seats in Texas. All right. So this is a really, really great example. A little bit old now, but a really great example of how you can um, win elections by drawing districts.
0: You're listening to the Mendocino College Symposium. This is Professor Phil Worf. His talk is titled Thumb on the Scale, Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections.
1: All right, so let's go to, the, um, this is an example that um, is sort of the biggest example of the past decade or so, and this is in North Carolina. And you can see that, uh, here's here's that uh, graphic from earlier, right, the 49% of the vote, but nine of the 13 seats. And hey, Democrats know how to gerrymander also. Republicans won 54% of the vote. This is all the Republican statewide vote. They only got six out of the 13 representatives in 2010. But once they took over, they were able to ultimately get up to 13 or to 10 out of the 13 seats. And you can see how that progressed over the course of the decade. And you can see the graphic here, seven seats in 2010 for the Democrats, just three seats in 2018, mainly as a result of just how they drew the districts. OK, really, really interesting. All right. And I just want to show this to you because um, you can see the Democrats, they drew some funky districts, too. Right. Um, but the Republicans drew some even funkier districts in 2012. And uh, I mainly wanted to show you because it says this would not uh, pass the partisan symmetry test or the more well-known WTF test. All right. Well, in, 20, uh, in 2016, those 2011 maps were, were thrown out. Uh, ruled unconstitutional by U.S. District Court. So in the middle of 2016, they said um, this doesn't pass a smell test, right, or the WTF test, I guess. Um, these districts look silly. These d- districts do not uh, represent a sort of community of interest. They represent something that's simply drawn for political advantage. And so Uh, the Republicans said, okay, uh, we got this court ruling. Let's just, we voluntarily redraw the districts. So they did. Um, And uh, a really interesting guy named Thomas Hoffeller who um, helped them with those districts. And he was a guy who really was pushing a citizenship question on the uh, census. He died a couple of years ago, but uh, he was really in favor of that uh, because he believed it would help Republicans get more districts, right? And he was, uh, he was a, um, he was the top guy at the Republican Party doing this. Uh, but anyway, so you can see these districts, they look a little bit better, right? So they redrew these in 2016, looks better, same result, all right? Now, um, let's not pretend that um, that Republicans Republicans in North Carolina are the only ones who draw uh, uh, gerrymandered districts. Uh, remember, the Rucho versus Common Cause case uh, was a North Carolina case, uh, but also included this um A Maryland case as well, and they stuck them together and they do this a lot. Uh, And so you can see that Maryland, in 2016, Maryland Republicans won 37% of the statewide two-party vote. That's not a big, big share, but it should be three out of, you know, the eight, right, roughly. Okay, uh, but when their Democrats redistricted, they only got one seat, the Republicans. So effectively, Democrats almost eliminated all political power for Republicans uh, in the congressional delegation. All right, so Democrats can do this too. Um, but I did want to read this Rucho versus Common Cause um, case a little bit, right? So I said before, um, that they're not justiciable political questions any longer. The Supreme Court believes uh, yet at the same time, the ruling said they're incompatible with democratic principles, right? But they they may be incompatible with democratic principles, but um, there's no norm that says that statewide elections for representatives must be along party lines, right? It's not unconstitutional because it makes it too difficult for one party to translate statewide support into seats in the legislature. And they say this because federal courts are not equipped to make these decisions, and there's no basis for concluding they were authorized to do so. So they have a totally different interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, and what the Civil Rights Act means, and uh, and and uh, the the impact of it. Right. So this is um, this is a big deal. It's a big deal, and we can see we'll see later that um, states that used to be uh, subject to the uh, the Voting Rights Act and the pre-clearance are. The most aggressive at going after, um, uh, going after uh, you know, voters of the other party. Let's say, okay. So back to North Carolina for a second. The the um, the state court. So okay, Supreme Court says eh, we're not going to get involved. Well, the state court says, oh well, we're going to get involved uh, because they do have more protections in terms of equal protection and the rights of voters and so forth in the North Carolina Constitution. So they made them redraw the districts again, and you can see here that it's likely that the Democrats are gonna pick up a couple of districts here. So they'll end up with maybe five uh, as uh, as compared to the three that they have now. And what really strikes me though, and this is really unfortunate, is that if you look at these, the so-called partisan lean, which is sort of the net advantage for one party or the other, there's there's still no swing district, no swing district whatsoever. And um, that's what um, Democrats said, we're not going to vote for this this map, even though we think it's going to help us out because there's no there's no swing districts here. And so it's really just a bipartisan gerrymander. OK. Plus, they have the ability to take the high road in that instance because they're gaining two seats. All right. So uh, we'll see what happens in 2020. But this is a huge election because what happens in 2020 is going to determine um, you know who's going to be doing redistricting for the next decade. So um, what about reform of redistricting? Well, one of the things that a lot of states are uh, doing is that, uh, or some states are doing, is they're going to redistricting commissions. And California's had a redistricting commission since uh, 2010. And um, at the at the congressional level, the state legislature levels in two thousand eight, uh, and these are done by initiatives, by proposition. It's a, it's a fairly complex process, all right. But it is a, a redistricting commission that takes this decision out of the hands of um, politicians and puts it into this commission. Uh, It's a kind of a complicated uh, structure uh, that involves members of the House, uh, the state legislature, but also some average uh, people. And, um, you know, people who talk about redistricting say that uh, when you're able to freely redistrict, it's the politicians choosing their voters instead of the voters choosing their politicians. And so this is interesting, unfortunately, for the Republicans when they who are behind this, of course, because they wanted to they, they wanted to keep the Democrats from gerrymandering the state. Um, They actually lost a seat in the next election, so it didn't really turn out that well for them, Uh, even though, you know, I think it's a better system for doing it. So uh, redistricting. So redistricting is really critical. Um, It's really important and is highly uh, political in nature. And should we get rid of redistricting that's controlled by the politicians themselves seems like a conflict of interest. Uh, and so maybe more states will go to redistricting commissions. Eight states have already done that. So that's very positive, I think. All right. Um, so let's uh, shift gears a bit. So we look at um, house races in each gerrymandered districts and so forth, and they're really not competitive, um, generally speaking. But at the presidential level and a number of statewide races, as we're seeing now, um, very close Senate races, they're much closer. Right. So the presidential level, super close elections. Right. Um, and at the at the state level, statewide level, too, you know, in 2016, Trump won by just a few, uh, you know, 10,000 votes or something in, um, you know, in uh, Wisconsin Michigan, Pennsylvania, and that won him the election, right? So those are, those swing states are, are pretty important, obviously, but uh, very, very close elections. Um, right now, the predictions are that Biden is going to win all three of those states, although um, we'll see what happens on election night. The, the absentee balloting has, a, um, you know, there's, there's an important aspect of absentee balloting here. Um, so what does Trump need to do? He's clearly not reaching out to um, to independent voters or people who might or swing voters, right? So he's really focusing on his own people. And if he does that, what does he got to do? He's got to try, and the Republicans have to try to limit turnout of the opponent's supporters. That's really essential to their strategy. So part of what they uh, have been doing the last several um, congressional cycles is engaging in really voter suppression tactics. OK, so um, what's happening is that um, they're doing these, um, you know, voter ID laws, the voter roll purges and all this stuff. And uh, so let's see. So voter ID laws really are measures that, um, you know, re- they require voters to obtain a government issued ID, uh, whatever the state specifies in order to go and cast their ballot at the, at the polls. And these have been much more expansive and much stricter over the past decade or so. And if you can, you want to. Oh, there's my intro slide. If you want to see here the voter ID laws that have been in effect um, recently, you can see that a number of states here, these really dark green states, they have strict voter ID uh, requirements. And um, then these guys, the little bit, little bit lighter, they have a, a, a strict non-photo ID. Then you have a photo ID requested in some states. I'm not even sure what color that is. And then um, there's no document required in a state like California, for example. All right, so um, the difference between a strict law and a, a, a non-strict law is that you uh, in a, with a with strict voter registration laws or voter id laws so you have to do something else besides show up at the polls right so you have to come back and show your id to someone you have to go to the registrar of voters and show your id you have to do something um, it's not just giving it to uh, turning it in at the at the polls In a non-strict voter id Uh, uh, state, you could actually have a poll worker vouch for you or um, something like that. So, you know, or they will go and do what happens in most states. They'll evaluate your ballot after to make sure that it's, um, you know, a a legitimate ballot uh, and they'll do that in the process of counting the ballot. So that would be a non-strict ID state. Uh, You know, in the year 2000, the vast majority of states over 35 here had no ID required. And now that's down to, um, you know, just about, about 17, something like that in 2016. And there's more of them now. And you can see the strict photo ID requirement has really um, come a long way since 2008. Um, so the strict voter ID requirements are more, um, they're more of them and they're growing over time. Okay, so state voter ID requirements. Now, um, given this push for ID laws, you would think that there's been sort of massive election fraud, something like that. But generally speaking, it's an imaginary problem, right? You see this, um, this cartoon, number of registered voters in Texas without a photo ID, um, 600,000. The number of alleged cases of voter fraud, less than six, four cases. So um, a lot of, most observers say this is an imaginary problem. Right. Um, unless, the reason why is because if you think about it, in order to, to impersonate a voter, uh, which is really what the ID uh, laws go after, you're going to have to um, uh, engage in fraud that would require you to steal somebody else's ballot. You're going to have to know names, addresses, et cetera, in order to obtain that, other identifying information. Uh, you're going to have to, and if that doesn't work, um, you're going to have to show up at, or you're going to have to show up at a polling place and pretend you're somebody else right? Uh, And they, you hope that they hadn't already voted and you hope that nobody recognizes that you're not that person and all that. Also, it's really um, not very rational behavior, right? Because you're going to do this thing and um, it may or may not have any, it's probably not going to have any impact on the election and uh, you could get in trouble and the voter uh, ID fraud is, um, you know, you even though it almost never happens, you probably would be found out and you probably would get in trouble. So um, it's, it's hard to do and it's irrational to do. It's kind of like paying people for their vote, right? I mean, I'm going to pay you something if you go vote for me. We well, have no idea what they're going to do when they get into the voter booth. Um, so um, buying votes or, or trying to impersonate people is really difficult.
0: You're listening to the Mendocino College Symposium. This is Professor Phil Worf. His talk is titled Thumb on the Scale Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections.
1: All right, so let's look at um, some examples here. Um, So there's been a number of studies on this. There have been journalism studies. The Huffington Post looked at this Republican National Lawyers Association data, and they found a couple of cases, none of which would be uh, dealt with by a voter ID problem. It mostly has to do with registration forms that were filled out improperly. Uh, This guy, um, uh, Justin Levitt at the Loyola Law School, who was a member of the uh, Justice Department during the the voting voting rights, did voting rights work at the Justice Department under the Obama administration, and he's done some analysis here. From 2000 to 2014, uh, in uh, federal elections, um, 834 uh, million ballots, or in all elections, rather, 834 million ballots cast. Uh, 35 credible allegations of uh, in-person voter fraud. So as you can see, it's not much of a problem. Uh, It's kind of a solution looking for a problem. (laughs) Okay. Um, There's a group called News 21. Um, They were very active in 2016. It's based out of uh, Arizona State University. And they found that uh, they found 2000 cases, roughly, of voter fraud uh, between 2000 and uh, 2012. uh, uh, And I'm and uh, this includes, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, any kind of fraud. And you can see that out of these uh, 146 million registered voters and billions of votes, uh, 10 cases of in-person voter fraud um, that, were, that were gone after, right? And you see this looks bigger, wow, 24%. There's only 491 cases of absentee ballot fraud as well during this time. So, um, you know, this is just really not a problem. There's no uh, question about that. So in terms of individual states, um, you might uh, look at that also, and you can see uh, some journalist reviews. Is there any significant in-person voter fraud? No. Um, You might look at individual states. In 2014, um, Iowa Secretary of State went through, had a two-year investigation, found zero cases of voter impersonation at the polls. Um, The uh, Supreme Court looked at a case out of Indiana, and in looking at uh, their um, voter laws, They were unable to find a single case of in-person voter fraud in the preceding 140 years, right? A Wisconsin study found there were um, seven cases of fraud uh, in 2004 out of 3 million votes cast, and none of them would be prevented by voter ID. Right. So in Wisconsin, the uh, registrar of voters or the spokesperson for Wisconsin elections office said uh, the number of prosecutions uh, for in-person voter fraud are so low that it hasn't been a priority to even track them. Right. And um, Kim Strock in North Carolina said uh, and the state board of um, state board of elections directors said there's been two cases of in-person uh, impersonation uh, in 2000 uh, since 2013. Right, so in the last um, six years or so. OK, so we got journalist reviews. No court rulings. N- uh, <laughs> nope. All right. Um, let's see. So we've got um, federal agency studies um, have their um, what, what have they found? So the Department of Justice in 2014. Uh, Court filing after review of databases and other records uh, found no apparent cases of in-person voter fraud uh, by the charge under the the uh, criminal division of the Department of Justice anywhere in the United States from 2004 to 2014. So if you look at federal studies, zero. Okay. Um, How about academics? Um, So some uh, some academic research. Uh, Jennifer Clark of the Brennan Center for Justice says voter fraud is not a significant problem in the country. And uh, that every analysis shows that uh, it's not important to to be worried about. And then Lorraine Midnight, who's also um, writes about voter fraud a lot, she's at Rutgers University and she said uh, in her book called The Myth of Voter Fraud that uh, it's rare because it's irrational and I talked about why that is. Okay, so we have our journalist reviews, we have some state investigations, we got uh, court rulings, we got federal studies, we got um, election official testimony and we've got academic research, right? No, nope, not there, negative, none, never. All right. So it's just not an issue. It's just not an issue. OK, so why do we have uh, voter ID laws? All right. Well, we have voter ID laws um, because um, uh, be- because uh, well, it's a good question why we have voter ID laws, because they really target uh, Democratic voters and, uh, and maybe they uh, keep Democratic voters from voting or maybe they scare them away from the polls. It's not clear. Um, but it does, um, cause some difficulty for some voter groups. Uh, Christopher Coates, who's, uh, uh former chief of, uh, voting, uh, section in the Department of Justice, Republican, said it really doesn't matter. Why do we, why do we have voter ID laws? It doesn't matter if it never happens, uh, because in, if even one person does it, um, if they're not legally entitled to vote, it's a big issue, right? Uh, and Republican Governor Scott Walker of, of um, of Wisconsin, former governor, he says, you know, if it's just one case, whose vote do you want to cancel out, right? Whose vote are you, whose vote do you want this person's uh, illegal vote to cancel out? And that's uh, been a pretty compelling argument for him. So, um, but why do, why do we have it, right? Well, um, in, in private, the uh, Republicans, uh, the Pennsylvania House Republican leader, for example, in 2012, he said, um, we're passing a voter ID law, and it's going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of Pennsylvania, this is in 2012. So he believed that having a voter ID law was going to keep enough Democratic voters away from the voting booth in order uh, that so that it would um, give Romney a victory in the presidential election in Pennsylvania. So uh, clearly, there's some belief that this is significant, right? Um, but it targets particular kind of voters because um, you know Democratic voters. And here's what the Brennan Center found: they found that in the 2016 election, people without government issued IDs. Um, they're mostly, uh, there's big percentages of African Americans, low-income Americans, young people, uh, all all Democratic, heavy Democratic voting blocks, and then Americans 65 or older, which also used to be a heavily Democratic voting block, less so now. But most of this uh, harms Democratic voters. I and mean, we're talking about a pretty large proportion of um, potential uh, voters, right? Okay, 25 percent. That's big, African Americans. So, uh, a number of uh, court, federal courts have also uh, found that um, minority voters are targeted by these voter ID laws. I'll show you some examples of that. Right, Strong evidence that typically Democratic voters uh, are less likely to have it. So the GAO, Government Accountability Office, in 2014 looked at seven states and they found that uh, African-Americans and Latino voters had lower uh, ownership of voter ID. A 538.com analysis by Nate Silver um, uh, determined 70% of those without proper ID were likely Democratic voters since 2012. Um, In Texas, African Americans were uh, almost two times as likely and uh, are more likely, and Latinos, uh, two and a half times roughly more likely than whites to lack proper identification as from a federal court ruling in 2014. And also uh, in Wisconsin, a big case out of Wisconsin, uh, the, one of the judges, the federal judge, said that Wisconsin has a preoccupation with mostly phantom election fraud. And, they, you know, they were wasting his time, I think, was, was what his perspective was. All right. Um, so they're less likely to have an ID. Right. These these kind of groups, typically Democratic groups, less likely to have an ID. So um, but what about turnout? And that's really the idea, right? What about turnout? And so, what's interesting here is that um, there's some evidence that's not very consistent, right? So, um, but the, again, the General Accountability Office, the GAO, federal government agency, found the two to four percent reduction in turnout of minority voters uh, after the nationwide voter ID uh, was enacted. And this is not who has a voter ID, but who, the turnout—that's uh, how turnout is affected by it. There was a 7% decrease in Hispanic turnout. Um, this was uh, the 2016 election. This University of Chicago study in 2017, right? And then um, the, uh, the federal judge in a North Carolina case said that um, these voter ID laws that North Carolina passed, quote, target African Americans with almost surgical precision. Right? So the idea here is to uh, eliminate uh, or undermine uh, Democratic voting.
0: You're listening to the Mendocino College Symposium. This is Professor Phil Worf. His talk is titled, Thumb on the Scale, Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections.
1: This is a study from um, UCSD, University of California at San Diego, and uh, it shows that uh, in general elections, which are the green bars, that You know, before if where you have strict voter ID versus, uh, you know, no strict voter ID here in these lighter green ones versus strict voter ID, you can see that um, Hispanic voters and Asian Americans, interestingly enough, have lower uh, turnout. Um, uh, But African Americans, um, you know, pretty consistent, you know, so that was interesting. And then white voters, of course, pretty consistent. And if you look at um, primary elections, um, you know, much worse results here uh, for all four of these groups. Right. So Um, Did it affect voter turnout in 2016? It looks like it did, right? But again, these uh, data are not particularly consistent. There are a number of studies that show that it doesn't affect turnout. Um, So if you look at um, this, another GAO study, they looked at 14, it's a meta-analysis of 14, I'm sorry, 10 studies. And they found, interestingly, that um, four studies said it actually decreased turnout, right? Which is what, one would expect, Um, five said there was no effect on turnout, and one said there was actually an increase in turnout, so it's, uh, there's no consensus here. There's a 2017 UC Davis study, it was a meta-analysis, modest if any, a 2017 Stanford study, no consistent effect, another a 2019 Harvard Business School study, no effect, and so there's some number of studies here that show that there's been little effect, but one thing you notice here is that these are, um, these are, very recent. right? So there are some people, some uh, observers, some some um, experts who believe that voter mobilization efforts have been quite effective and that may be why you see less of an impact in these later studies. Others would say um, that uh, Nate Silver with the 538.com says this, <clears throat> that those without ID are much less likely to turn out anyway. So if they're 70% Democratic, that really doesn't translate into a huge hit for Democrats um, because they're just not likely to turn out anyway. Right. So there's some there's some uh, competing uh, information here about, um, you know, the impact of of, uh, voter ID laws. I think one thing that's that hopefully is getting better is that um, there is uh, it looks like that the uh, efforts to get people to turn out and to make uh, make clear that this is an issue and a concern that people should address um, seems to be working, right? So that's positive. Okay. Um, Just real quickly, let's talk about voter purging, um, just to have a little bit of time left here, but voter purging, right? So um, people, the the registrars of voters, they go in and and they look at the voter registration list and they get rid of people who haven't voted in a certain amount of time. And it looks like uh, it, the um, data that I've seen suggests that um, just in uh, the, the time, the two years before the 2018 election, between the 2016 and 2018 elections, <clears throat> 10% of all U.S. voters were purged from voter rolls. And where did this happen? <laughs> it happened uh, in these states here that purge pretty aggressively. And these, uh, you know, you can see a, a lot of these states here, North Carolina is one of them, right? Um, you can see it's pretty heavy in some place in Texas, Wisconsin is a, a major, uh, major purger, right? Uh, Georgia as well, and South Carolina. So some states that you would expect to see, right? So massive voter purges. Let's go back. Uh, the way that the, this is called use it or lose it. So what typically happens is um, if you don't vote for an election cycle or two, um, you'll get a, uh, and in Florida, it's just one, just miss a vote one time, and they're going to send you a notice, and if you don't respond to the notice, uh, they're going to send you another notice, and if you don't respond to that, you're going to be marked as inactive, and then if you don't vote, you're going to be taken off the rolls. You're going to show up to the voting booth, and they're going to say, sorry, you're not registered to vote, and very few states, just a handful, have same-day voter registration, so you're in a pickle. And so here, this is a Democratic Party poster of, um, you know, trying to address this problem of uh, getting people to turn out. We know that it was a big issue in Georgia <clears throat> in 2018. Um, so the purge rates here. And then uh, we do know that, um, you know, the, so there's three, three problems here with use it or lose it. One of them is partisan, right? So you see that the voters purge is Ohio in 2019. You can see that people who are purged uh, tend to be uh, you know, tend to be on the younger end, and le- which should tend to be more likely Democratic voters, and they're probably more likely to to move around. That doesn't mean that they're not uh, they're not still there. Oops. And then um, you can see by party, there's some evidence that um, Democratic voters are being gone after in terms of purging. Um, so in terms of these purges. Um, there's a guy named Greg Palast, who's an uh, investigative journalist, and he's he filed a number of lawsuits lawsuits in all kinds of a, a number of states. Right. Um, and after 2016, and he found that, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, these were young people and people of color who were um, who who were purged from the voter rolls. Right. Uh, and then I show sure you here about Ohio. Um, democratic neighborhoods in the state's three largest counties were struck from the rolls at nearly twice the rate as voters and, uh, and mainly Republican or, or people with the districts with a Republican profile, let's say, right. Um, in African-American suburbs, um, of our neighborhoods of Cincinnati, more than 10% of people were purged compared to less than 4% in uh, other parts of the state. Uh, let's see. Oops, sorry. And, um, all right. And in Georgia, this is interesting, right? So Georgia had this really close election in 2018 and uh, the governor, current governor of, of um, Georgia, who was the uh, secretary of state, who oversees um, overseas elections and oversees registrations and so forth. He was running against uh, Stacey Abrams. And you can see that this is 2014. And when uh, before the 2018 election, he, uh, Kemp and the, and the Georgia engaged in significant voter purging, and particularly right here before uh, the 2018 election, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of voters, and then it said 53,000 voters just based on the so-called exact match program, where if even if you're missing, a, uh, you know, uh, a dash or something like that. Um, you get pulled out. And so 53,000 of those were pulled out, and Stacey Abrams lost by 55,000 votes. So it really matters. It's a big deal. Okay. Um, let's see. And, you know, we, if you look at, um, so, so, you know, it's partisan. There's no question about that. It's also a flawed process, right? Um, because this sending out notices to voters is, is kind of dumb. Um, almost nobody returns them. And, you know, this uh, Paul Smith at Georgetown University looked at uh, 2017 in Georgia, and he said that there were 500,000 about approximately of these notices sent out, only about 10% of them got returned. All right. So it almost, uh, so it's known that this is unlikely to happen, that people are unlikely to respond to them. And then uh, finally, it's really unnecessary, right? Because who who knows where people live? Well, there's an electronic registration information center, which is actually a group of several states who have gotten their information together. And so they can can, um, all have one database and check with each other if someone has moved. They know that. Right. Also, um, you have the Federal uh, Election Assistance Commission. You got the change of address system the U.S. Postal Service uses. That would be easy to find out where people live. And uh, Greg Palast, he said, I'm going to call FedEx and UPS. They know where people live. And so. Uh, he found that um, the, uh, by looking at the Georgia purge list, they found 340,000 voters never moved from their original registration address, 340,000 voters. And that was when the, he asked FedEx and UPS to check that out. So there's lots of other ways, better ways to figure out um, registration. So let me, I want to take all this time, but i uh, say a couple more things about about this. So let's go back to the Voting Rights Act, right? So the Brennan Center for Justice, Myrna Perez there, she said that, um, you know, these, uh, it's important to, it it was uh, useful, let's say, to have the VRA because it was a way to go after these kind of laws, right? So that, I mean, these are definitely uh, dilution laws or denial laws. And um, to eliminate these bad purges, the 1965 uh, voting, uh, voting Rights Act uh, would have been able to, um, to stop some of this purging. So you can see that in 2014, that wasn't happening. And once they removed the, the sort of restrictions on the Voting Rights Act, it really began to kick up. Okay, and so you can see that uh, the states that were covered by section five, right? That where they had to get pre-clearance, you can see that those purge rates really kicked up after the Shelby County versus Holder decision uh, in 2013, where it eliminated, uh, where it invalidated Section 4, right? So um, you can see that uh, this makes, it, this has really made a big difference, uh, the, the VRA being sort of undercut like that. Let's see. So um, if you look at, um, oh, so the um, the Brennan Center, back to, the, sorry, back to the Brennan Center, they said that about 2 million voters, uh, 2 million fewer voters would have been purged in the absence of this um the Supreme Court's elimination of uh, of the uh, fourth section of the VRA right um, the Democrats have something called a voter protection tool that they're using to, to try to identify uh, some of these people who have been purged right And so um, I don't know how much further um, I can go, but I got a couple of uh, uh, a couple other things to talk about real quickly here. Okay, so if you can, um, so let's talk about closing polling stations. You can see that most of these big closure of polling stations have happened in states that were affected by um, the Voting Rights Act or identified by the Voting Rights Act, right? Um, You know, so um, the, uh, we, what we've seen is that, um, you know, places where there's uh, a lot of African-Americans, you have um, fewer polls being open, you have much longer lines. Um, these are you know, much tougher on um, you know, working people in terms of the, the time that they have and so forth. Um, in 2016, uh, some researchers at UCLA found that voters in Black neighborhoods waited on average 29% longer than um, people in mostly White neighborhoods and they were 70% more likely to wait for an hour. So this is really a way to sort of limit the impact of voting. Uh, Yeah, here it says right here, right? Voters in black neighborhoods waited 29% longer on average. Okay, early voting has been really cut back. Uh, There's a great quote here from um, a Republican uh, leader where he says, this is from Carter Wren from North Carolina, surprisingly enough. And it says, um, yeah, Of course it's political. Why else would you do it, right? Uh, Any party wants to strengthen their majority. He says, look, if African Americans voted overwhelmingly Republican, um, they would have kept the early voting the way it was, but they got caught up in it because they mostly vote Democratic, right? At least he's honest about it, right? Um, I think, you know, I personally think less of it is about racism than about uh, winning elections, but certainly uh, that's a, a big part of it, I would think. okay." Um, oh, and real quickly, I'll be I'll be done with this in a minute. So um, there's a lot of so what we're seeing in 2020, and this is an important issue is um, the vote by mail issue, and so in 2020 we've got a number of states who typically uh, who who have um, who've expanded their vote by mail or made it more permissive right? So you can see that there are a few states that have that are all vote by mail, these dark states. California allows counties to vote, uh, to do only mail voting. Uh, And then um, you have a number of other states that have, they're temporarily allowing vote by mail, okay? And then just in a few states left, you have to have an excuse if you order that absentee ballot, all right? So that's good that the states are expanding access to vote by mail. Um, And most states know that um, it's not going to, um, they're not going to be invalidated and it's not going to cause a lot of, they're not going to cause cheating. Um, you can see that the growth of early and vote by mail has been pretty spectacular. All right. Um, I see Nika, so she's going to cut me off. But yeah, one last point, the mail balloting doesn't lead to voter fraud and that's a big issue, right? So um, if you look at the California Secretary of State's investigations in 2016, um, these kinds of cases, uh, voter fraud cases, um, about 0.0006% of 14 million votes cast. So if you're worried about voter fraud and absentee ballot, it's just not going to happen. Okay, I'm done.
0: You're listening to the Mendocino College Symposium. This is Professor Phil Worf. His talk is titled, Thumb on the Scale, Using Gerrymandering and Voter Suppression to Rig Elections. The PowerPoint for this presentation can be found at mendocinocollege.edu slash symposium. You can also find a list of four further reading provided by Professor Worf.